and welcome to Dockside, the podcast that helps you save and enjoy the waters you love by sharing clean and safe boating practices. I'm your host, Sarah Kennedy. In today's episode, we will meet Dr. Scott Coffin, a research scientist at the California State Water Resources Control Board. Dr. Coffin will be sharing with us information about microplastics, their definition, sources, how significant the microplastic pollution problem is in California, what we currently know about the issue, what the state is doing about it, and what we can do to combat microplastics. Welcome to the show, Dr. Coffin. We're very excited to talk about this important topic impacting not only California, but the world. I'm super happy to be here, Sarah. Thank you. Can you first uh, tell us how you got interested in studying microplastics? Sure, so I did a bachelor's of chemistry uh, all the way back in 2013. And when I finished with that, I was doing some guiding work in Costa Rica, uh, taking students on uh, trips to remote parts of the country. And as we were walking along the beaches, we noticed that there was a lot of trash in otherwise remote and uninhabited areas. And it just got me curious of where that trash was coming from. Uh, considering there was almost no one on land to contribute it. And so I figured out that um, there, this is not just a, a problem for Costa Rica, but really this is a global issue. And it's likely that the trash that we found on that remote beach actually had washed up from the open ocean uh, or, or a nearby city um, from a different, different coastline. And that just got me really thinking about what are the impacts of plastic on our ecosystems, on our health, and at the time, the issue was poorly investigated in the scientific community. So I found a laboratory at the University of California in Riverside that was interested in the topic and willing to work with it. And so I started my PhD in environmental toxicology there. Fast forward five years, and I started working for the State Water Resources Control Board and thinking about microplastics, not only in terms of the research and what it's doing to our health, but also what we can do about it from policy and regulatory perspectives. Wow, thank you. And so let's start with some definitions. What are microplastics? Microplastics are considered by most scientists to be synthetic plastic particles that are smaller than five millimeters. And five millimeters is approximately the size of an eraser on a pencil. And that really goes down all the way to very, very small particles in the nanometer range that are actually smaller than DNA itself. Uh, so these, these particles, um, they can fragment once they get into the environment uh, with UV radiation from the sun and weathering, salt, and they just continue, they continue to break down into infinitesimally smaller pieces, uh, which is one of the issues um, that we're concerned about. And what are the biggest sources of microplastics? It really depends where you're looking to answer that question. But in general, we know that the largest sources are effectively what we're using as plastic in our daily lives. So if you think about the plastic that you interact with on a daily basis, most of it is going to be in the form of food packaging, uh, containers from restaurants or from the grocery store a lot of that plastic makes it into the trash bin or the recycling bin 
And the vast majority of it is actually dealt with in a, a way that it doesn't contaminate the environment. However, the very small percentage that makes it out into the environment, either through littering or just being blown out of a trash bin or just not making it all the way to the, the landfill or the recycling facility, that can contribute a significant amount um, of microplastics once it starts weathering and breaking down in the environment. The other main sources are actually, surprisingly, the fibers that we wear on our clothing and use in our carpets and rugs and upholstery for furniture and our house. All of those fibers are constantly shedding from our from, from those articles. And if you think about it, uh, if you look like at an old polyester shirt, it's different from the day you bought it. It feels different, it looks different, it's thinner. That's because there's a significant portion of those fibers that have sloughed off, typically when you put it into the washing machine or into the dryer. And those particles go uh, either to a wastewater treatment plant, in the, in the case of a washing machine, uh, or straight into the air. Uh, if you have a dryer, a lot of the time the exhaust just goes straight into the air. And, and once it reaches, once the particles reach a wash, or sorry, a, a wastewater treatment plant, they are often converted into biosolids, and the biosolids can be applied to land for different use cases. Often, agriculture is the most common one, especially in California. And there was a recent study estimating uh, over seven kilotons of synthetic fibers from washing machines was land applied in California in 2019 alone. So just to give you an idea, uh, seven kilotons is, a, you know, that's a very, very large quantity for one year. Um, so you can imagine over decades how that can accumulate and become a significant source. And the other main source that I want to touch on is tires and tire wear particles. Uh, same thing with your clothing. When you notice that it's thinner, than the day you bought it, those those particles are, are being shed actively into the environment. And tires are, are made to interact with road all day long uh, with very high impact, a lot of friction. Uh, and so that the, the tread um, uh, indicator is shows you really the percentage of that tire that's just sloughing off into the environment. And we're, we typically find tire wear particles accumulating in waterways that are downstream of storm drains. Um, typically what happens is these particles accumulate on the roadways when we drive and then a big storm comes through. If we're really lucky in California, we'll get a big storm every once in a while and it will wash those particles into the nearest body of water. Um, in San Francisco, uh, we consider tire wear particles to be one of the most significant sources of microplastics. and um, we're just learning a lot of the issues that come along with not just the particles, but also the chemicals coming off of tires as well. Wow, I had no idea. <laughs> and you touched on this a little bit. Where are microplastics mostly found? So the majority of the particles are being washed with other particles in our system. So if I mentioned before, uh, storm water is a uh, major transport for any type of particle, uh, whether it be dust uh, from, from different sources, from rocks, from, from um, 
human skin, um, plastic, all of that is going to be washed downstream eventually. So the ocean is typically the terminal part of that cycle. And so that's where we're going to find really the highest accumulation of plastics globally. But there may also be inland lakes that are terminal um, or that have a large settling basin, in which case a lot of the plastics are going to accumulate there. They're either going to float or if they become biofouled with, with different organisms, then they may become uh, negatively buoyant, in which case they'll fall to the bottom of the lake and create a sedimentary layer. And we're finding actually sedimentary layers of plastic out in the marine environment and elsewhere. And really the other main sink for these particles is like I mentioned before, agricultural land or really anywhere that we're applying large quantities of biosolids. Um, it doesn't have to be agricultural land. Sometimes we also apply biosolids for uh, energy um, production. Uh, and so, so those could also be uh, significant sinks as well. Well, we seem to be hearing a lot more about microplastics in the news more than ever before. Why, why is that? That's a great question. And I think it really comes down to the fact that plastic is something that everyone interacts with on a daily basis and is something that we can conceive of as potentially being a harmful issue. A lot of the a lot of the contaminants that environmental scientists worry about are dissolved chemicals that are really abstract. They have bizarre names, they're hard to pronounce. And for most people without a very strong background in chemistry, they don't really mean anything to us. In the case of microplastics, the term itself elicits an image in most people's minds as something that is probably not good for us. Where there's an instant sort of yuck factor that most people have to the idea of eating plastic. Um, and that's probably why it's gotten so big and continues to be such a hot button issue with the general public. But it was not always that way. I mentioned before that I started studying plastics in 2013, 2014. At the time, microplastics was not a household term. And really, it was barely used in the scientific literature. And the idea of plastic pollution in general was not really in front of the public. And it took a long time, many decades of environmental advocates raising the issue of litter and trash and plastic pollution to finally get to where we are today, where most people are at least aware of the issue and consider it to be something that's problematic. Now, what's, what is the problem with microplastics? That's a great question. And that has been vexing scientists for a very long time. Um, what we know is that the particles themselves can be toxic to humans and non-human organisms through many different ways that are highly complicated. The particles can take up space in the gut of an organism. Say you're a seabird and you're actively scavenging for prey. Um, out in Hawaii, there's a place called Turn Island where the albatross have guts that are full to the brim of trash, of plastic that they have 
actively hunted from the air because they're colorful and they look like fish. In those cases, those birds are experiencing what's called food dilution. The, the particles simply are not food and they're taking up space in their gut and preventing them from getting the nutrients they need. They are having premature deaths because of that. For humans, we don't really think food dilution is ever going to be relevant. No human is going to eat that quantity of plastic, hopefully not. What we're more concerned about for human health is the very small particles that can accumulate in our organs. So par particles that are smaller than about 10 microns or about a blood cell can translocate across our tissues. So once we eat them, our gut thinks that it's some type of food particle. And so it can take it up into our bloodstream and distribute it throughout our body. Some of those particles are going to lodge themselves into our different organs. Um, if it's a very sensitive organ, such as reproductive tissue, that particle over a very long period of time could damage those cells. Um, this happens through what we call oxidative stress or inflammation to related processes. And that's really what we're seeing from the toxicity literature, uh, looking at rodent studies that we're seeing this impacts to uh, whatever tissues are being exposed to particles long term have impacts. And that's really just the particle issue with plastics. There's a load of other ways that these plastics can affect biota. One that we have been studying for a very long time are the chemicals that are added to plastics to give them functional traits. Most people have probably heard of BPA or bisphenol A. That was banned from baby bottles and poly, uh, uh, polycarbonate uh, baby feeding bottles uh, back in about 2014 or so in the US, United States. We're concerned about BPA because it mimics the human, in, uh, uh, the human form of estrogen. Um, and estrogen can, if you have an uh, excess amount of that, can cause a host of health issues in, in uh, biological males and females, not just in human populations, but also across many different mammalian organisms. And that's just really the tip of the iceberg. Um, there's over 5,000 problematic chemicals associated with plastics, and we don't fully understand the risks associated with all of those. The third uh, way that plastics can be damaging is through harboring of pathogens. So these particles can act as a hub for different, very small microbiological organisms. Uh, sometimes these are viruses, sometimes they're uh, um, something, something like um, more common uh, pathogens that we, we might worry about, like Giardia or, or, or Cryptosporidium. And those particles can be transported very long distances and protect those pathogens from being destroyed by other means, such as UV radiation or even chlorination in a wastewater treatment plant. So what efforts, if any, are being taken by the industry to solve this problem? There's a lot of efforts that are being taken right now. Um, one of the, the longest running ones is Operation Clean Sweep. This was launched in 1991 uh, by the American Chemistry Council to help plastic, plastic resin handling operations achieve a zero plastic resin loss. More actively, they're working, uh, the plastic industry as a whole, uh, and especially Plastics Europe and the American Chemistry Council, which are the, the 
uh, some large um, uh, trade association groups in, in Europe and the United States are, are working to better understand how to make materials that are less harmful to humans and organisms in the environment and less persistent. And they're doing this through a lot of different ways, really working with the scientific researchers to better understand what's driving the toxicity, as this is such an emerging field with such an incredibly complicated and diverse contaminant suite. It, it's There's still a lot of open questions, even though we've been studying it for quite a while now. Another way is that the plastic industry is, is helping out is trying to reformulate their products to shed less plastics to begin with. So for instance, when you unscrew the lid of a plastic water bottle, it sheds thousands of particles into the air. Uh, just the, the sheer force motion of, of that uh, unthreading um, generates microplastics that could be contributing to your daily exposure at higher quantities than you would get from just drinking tap water. And some of the big plastic bottle manufacturers are engineering ways to reduce the generation of microplastics in that process. And, and that's just like one of many different ways that um, the plastic industry is trying to reduce the microplastics issue. So in 2015, California banned microbeads in toiletries like facial, facial scrubs and toothpaste, but sources of tiny plastic are still found everywhere. In 2018, California adopted a strategy to begin tackling microplastics and the problems they pose to our oceans and human health. Health. Could you tell us a little bit about the plan and how it's progressing? Absolutely. So in 2018, the California legislature passed Senate Bills 1263 and 1422, which require the Ocean Protection Council and the State Water Resources Control Board to address microplastics in the marine environment and in human health through drinking water. And late last year, the State Water Resources Control Board adopted our policy handbook for monitoring microplastics in drinking water. This includes a four-year plan for monitoring microplastics in drinking water throughout the state of California and really represents the first effort by a regulatory authority to monitor for microplastics in a standardized and harmonized way. And that monitoring will begin early in 2024. And if you live in one of the 30 largest uh, service areas for drinking water in the state, it's approximately 50% of the population of California, you will get information about how much microplastics could potentially be in your drinking water uh, later in 2024. When it comes to protecting the ocean health and other marine ecosystems in California, uh, the Ocean Protection Council passed a, uh, adopted a plan that includes a two-track strategy. And the first track is just taking no regrets solutions that we have enough information to act on today. So we don't need more information to know that we should be reducing the amount of plastic that we consume as a society. Uh, so we have targets in place for how to how to reach reduction uh, goals. Um, included in that is a, a very recently passed bill uh, by the legislature called Senate Bill 54, which actually mandates the recycling and composting of, of products 
um, by different years at different amounts and a reduction target um, that, that increases over years. Um, also included in the Ocean Protection Council strategy is developing science to better address the issue through policy and regulations. Um, that includes really fundamental things like how, how can we measure these particles in the environment reliably? What do we do with that data? Can we reliably predict which parts of the state are most impacted by microplastics? Uh, which organisms are most at risk? Uh, are there certain communities that we should be more or less concerned about their impacts that, and should we mitigate those impacts first? Um, for instance, um, potentially subsistence fishermen um, that, that live on a certain type of fish with high microplastics concentrations could potentially be more at risk than someone who doesn't eat a lot of fish. Um, we're advancing the science alongside the policy and the regulations to better address the issue in real time. Wow. And in 2018, California became the first government in the world to, to require mi microplastic testing for drinking water. In 2022, the standardized methods were adopted. What is involved in the testing plan? What are the short-term and long-term goals? And how long is this plan going to be implemented? So, indeed, this is the first time that a government has ever required microplastics monitoring in drinking water. So we have a lot of work to do because the methods that we're using are, they've been tested, but not in a extremely thorough and widespread way. And we also don't have any commercial analytical laboratories that have used in a significant way. So we're really starting with building up the infrastructure in the state, um, both in the government side um, and as, as well as in the private sector to be able to conduct this monitoring and feel reliable about the results. So included in that is a stepwise plan where we're currently in what we're calling the pilot phase, we, where the State Water Resources Control Board is actively funding and contributing to some research to make sure that our data um, is going to be ready to be handled by the state. So we're building our own database to house the data. Uh, we're working with public water systems to develop strategic consumer messaging language so that we can convey the information to them in the most transparent and honest way without also increasing unnecessary concern, um, uh, premature concern. And we're also developing sampling techniques to ensure that we're collecting water in a way that is representative and is free of background contamination, which is one of the most challenging aspects of microplastics. That pilot phase uh, ends later this fall. And after that, we'll start phase one of monitoring. Phase one of monitoring is a two year phase in which about 30 water systems in the state will sample for microplastics in the source waters used for drinking water. Uh, not the actual treated drinking water, but the source waters. And the reason for that is the analytical method that we have depends on light spectroscopy using infrared or Raman spectroscopy. And the size limit for that method incidentally is a little bit larger than the particles that are being removed by most treatment processes already. 
So we have a little bit of a conundrum where if we were to use that method to look for microplastics in treated drinking water, we likely wouldn't find them because they are being, the particles that we can see are being removed. But we still know that a lot of those particles are getting through most treatment processes. Um, we just can't detect them right now. So there's a little bit of a, a lag between where we want to be from a policy perspective and where the science is, is at. But we believe that that gap will close over the next few years, especially as we start monitoring and instrument manufacturers uh, advance their, their instrumentation, analytical labs get better. And so that's why in phase two, um, we anticipate that we'll be able to use these methods in a more sophisticated way to look for microplastics in treated drinking water. And that'll be starting around 2025, 2026. This issue seems so daunting given the prevalence of plastics in our lives. Is there any way that individuals and folks listening can help um, to reduce microplastics? The, the two main ways that people can reduce microplastics are to, in their personal lives, is to consume less plastic packaging whenever possible. I know that it's incredibly difficult, especially if you like to go out to eat and take your food home. But there are some restaurants now that are allowing people to bring their own Tupperware to be filled uh, with, with food that they buy. Um, you can also find grocery stores that have refill stations or just bring your own bags as well. All of that has a big impact when everyone does that on a weekly basis. And the other thing is to try and, avo try and avoid buying new synthetic fibers. So for clothing, See if you can buy natural fibers, um, hemp, cotton, wool. We know these work really, really well. Um, they might not be the best for certain applications like outdoor adventures or uh, working out um, where you want something that's stretchy and more waterproof. But for daily use, um, most people can get by with natural fibers and they actually feel really good. And, and the other thing is if you're thinking about getting new carpets or new rugs in your house, uh, the cost of getting a natural fiber uh, alternative is typically very, very minimal compared to what it is for uh, synthetic fibers. Uh, they fully biodegrade. Um, you can get wool um, um, rugs that fully biodegrade, have less chemical additives. They're less harmful to you during the use of that product, For especially if you have children crawling on them. I wouldn't, uh, I, I would want the best for them. Um, and then at the end of the life of that product, um, you're not contributing to um, this unrecyclable uh, plastic fiber. Wow, thank you. Um, that's the end of my questions for you today. Do you have any final thoughts or anything you'd like to add for our listeners today? Uh, I would just encourage everyone to just bring up the issue with your friends and family, especially if, if this is something that you're passionate about and let them know some of the amazing things that California is doing. Um, this is something that other states could potentially mirror. Um, our, our efforts to address plastic in a holistic way uh, is really ambitious and goal setting. And also to not be prematurely uh, scared about the issue. I know it's really daunting and, and frightening, but I would not recommend people to stop drinking tap water um, if, if they are already. Um, because bottled water is probably worse from everything that we know. 
Um, and just, just to be a little bit more conscious about, you know, our daily plastic consumption habits. Thank you, Dr. Coffin, for your time today. I learned so much. Um, thank you for joining us. So please, everyone, plan to tune in for our future episodes. For more information about micro microplastics, please visit plastiverse.org. That's plastiverse.org. This podcast was brought to you by California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways, the California Coastal Commission, and the San Francisco Estuary Partnership and it is partially funded by the Division of Boating and Waterways Clean Vessel Act Education Program and the Federal Clean Vessel Grant Act Program. <laughs>